Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who liked the idea of being CEO headhunter better when I thought it meant literally hunting CEOs. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is James Citrin, someone I've known but not known for a long time, the leader of Spencer Stewart's CEO practice. It's a global executive recruiting firm that has worked with companies like SurveyMonkey, Mozilla, Twitter, Yahoo, everybody. I don't think there's anyone James hasn't recruited in Silicon Valley. Um, he's at the center of a lot of things, but also behind the scenes. He is the author of several books, most recently, The Career Playbook. James, welcome to Recode Decode. I'm so excited to get you here. Thanks, Karen. I'm hoping Happy you'll tell some stories, but I don't know if you will. Let's start talking a little bit about your career. I like to have people's background of sure. how you got to what you've you done, and especially how you got to the tech sector and how you moved into that area, because, you know, you all have done, like, a lot of the major placements yes. of major executives. So, Talk a little bit about how you got where you got. Sure. Well, first of all, I went to Vassar College, and uh-huh. I went, graduated in 81 and mm-hmm. went to Wall Street as an analyst. At Morgan Stanley, went back to Harvard Business School, and I had this curious what situation. What did you analyze at Morgan Stanley? Just corporate finance and different deals. And I was okay at it. I wasn't great at it. I liked the firm. Not a but killer, James. I was definitely not a killer, but— this Or obsequious, is, either one. <laughs> well, this, this actually is relevant because— one of the things at HBS, I was really good at interviewing. I was really good at seeing what companies that were recruiting wanted and getting job offers. I ended up coming out in 1986 and went to Goldman Sachs in private wealth management. Didn't really like it, but one of the companies that I so got— this is kissing up to rich people, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Actually, the, the original thought was mm-hmm. I like relationships, and I liked advising people, and I thought that doing it at Goldman would be a great place, mm-hmm. but I actually didn't like investing and all this stuff. But I ended up going to McKinsey in 1987, spent five years and really, really enjoyed it and learned a lot and did some media work at McKinsey and loved, fell in love with media. And um, This is just consulting. Strategy consulting to publishing to television, cable like and who, all the like. I guess 30 years, the statute of limitations mm-hmm. can be off because McKinsey never talks about their clients, but like Time Inc. And I worked in the Paris office for a big French media company back then. And I had the idea that I wanted to go into media. And so in 1992, I ended up going to then a prominent global company, Reader's Digest Association, yeah. <laughs> as director of global strategic planning. And I really did not like it. And uh, a year... Why? Because I actually... It was a very much of a 
direct marketing company. It was. And actually, this is quite funny for, for your audience. One of the tasks that I had in 1993 was to develop the electronic publishing strategy for Reader's Digest. And doing a lot of research, I ended up thinking that the right way to go was basically into CD-ROMs when other companies were investing in, and figuring out the internet. I totally missed that. So I was never a great strategist, certainly in a corporate Those CD-ROMs. Planet. Those I mean, CD-ROMs, but... Uh, <laughs> that was five seconds. Totally, <laughs> totally. But it was great because I called a friend of mine who was at Spencer Stewart asking her for some advice because I just wasn't happy. I wasn't really feeling successful. And she said, have you ever thought about our business? And I was like, your business? She said, sure, the executive recruiting business. I think you'd really be good at it and you'd enjoy it. And I was like, she so said— So get this straight. An executive yeah. recruiter recruited you to work at an executive— con- Happen, uh, her Happens executive. all the time. Okay, Happens all right. Happens okay. all the time. And the reason was is it was like all the great parts of McKinsey and strategy consulting without a lot of the bad. And what I realized was the things I loved at McKinsey was— Working with clients, I loved building the teams. I actually had a, always a good sense for people, and I was always good at the communication side. And I understood the problems, but rather than solving them yourself, finding someone else. And it was actually a really interesting moment, again, way before many of your listeners sort of realized, but this was at the time when Spencer Stewart recruited Lou Gerstner from RJR Nabisco to IBM mm-hmm. and turned around IBM. That was 1993, 1994. And so literally 25 years ago this month, I went and started at Spencer Stewart, started in media recruiting, doing medium-level things. Explain how that entails for people who don't understand. What did you do? What was your job? So I started as a consultant, which is what I am today, a consultant in Spencer Stewart. We're a global leadership advisory and executive recruiting so you go firm. into a company. You, so we are retained by companies to find executives for needs. And so... It happens all the time now. A company needs a chief financial officer. The chief financial officer retired, and they, you diagnose what it needs, and you interview the management team, you develop a position specification, and then you go out, do research, and try and find the very best people to do it. And you don't always get to work on the highest profile things you start. Like everybody, you start kind of in the opportunities you're given. And, you know, over the last 25 years, I've worked my way up and working with teams with great global firm, and I've worked on over 700 assignments over these 25 years. But to your question of how I got into tech, I knew tech a little bit, but not that but well. But you doing media for the most Right. Time. I came in really doing media, and I did a lot of publishing. And in the mid-90s, as publishers started going to the internet uh, and creating interactive, I did that. And here are this very, very... Uh, interesting here. So in the year 2001, in the year 2001, Yahoo had a market cap before the first crash of over $100 billion. And I'd written, one of the things I learned at McKinsey was the importance of research and intellectual capital. So I wrote a book back in 1998 called Lessons from the Top. It analyzed the best CEOs in America And then I had the idea to go out and just like you, interview them, get to know them, and try and draw lessons learned for great leadership. And so I did that, and that book came out, and it was really a big success, and I learned a lot of— What were the lessons then? Well, some of the lessons were super timeless to this day about thought leadership, people leadership, values leadership, and it's kind of funny. So there were 50—in Lessons from the Top, there were the 50, quote, best business leaders in America— 
And of the and they were we did all sorts of analysis, uh, shareholder performance. We did a Gallup survey on the most admired. We did all sorts of other things. And in general, we got it right of some of those 50. And these were people like Howard Schultz at Starbucks, Michael Dell, Michael Eisner at the time. Not uh, so good in the not, end. No, but, but over, over, over time, many, sure. many were really there. So the lessons learned were about thought leadership and people leadership. What I learned back then, and I see this day in and out, is that the leadership styles can be from introverted to extroverted. That's the style is not the point. Leadership is situational in style. But the important things are about values, about thought leadership, and people leadership. And we come back, come back yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, the point is that I did a follow-up book in 2001 on more digital leadership. And one of the people that I got to know in that process was Tim Kugel, mm-hmm. who at the time was the CEO of Yahoo. And later, after that book came out, he asked me to come out to Sunnyvale and spend some time with him. And when I went out there with a partner of mine, assuming it would be just an hour kind of conversation, he Mm -hmm. invited me to spend the whole day with him and Jerry Yang. And at the end, and Mike Moritz, the famous— No, Jeff uh, Mallett, was he there? Jeff had just left. Uh Oh, sorry, sorry. Jeff was—no, Jeff Jeff was there. Jeff was there at the time. Exactly. He He was a COO. Exactly. So that's where this is going. They asked me— to my surprise, to do the CEO search in 2001. And the reason they why they came to me, because I wasn't like a fixture in Silicon Valley, they knew I had media, and they had a theory at the time that Yahoo should become more of a media company. And then I did the first of two, as you well know, CEO searches at, at Yahoo, one in 2001, recruited Terry Semmel, who had just left Warner Brothers as the co-chairman and CEO. So you could, I know Terry yeah. really well. Yeah. He was one of my investors, actually. Yeah. Can you talk about what you when you were doing that? You were looking for a media person who hadn't been in tech, right? And that can you talk about that in that case? I mean, in that in that case, this is again, this is now 18, 18 yeah. years ago, and there was an existential question that Yahoo had, and many companies have it, whether mm-hmm. it's in tech or media or retail, for that matter. Of what's kind of the essence, and they had a they had a view that Yahoo should become more of a media company, therefore needed a media leader, what would the right... And we had a number of media Mm -hmm. CEOs. We did test that hypothesis with also having a big software CEO as as a candidate back in the day. But Terry was brilliant, and he, while he wasn't tech, he had great access to advisors. Jeff Wiener was on his team at Warner Brothers, Mm -hmm. and Jeff helped advise him getting smart in that process. He was a kid. He was in his late 20s. And uh, I think uh, Jeff, uh, not to speak for him, but he would credit Terry for really moving sure. him into uh, tech, even though he did Warner Brothers Interactive at the time. In any case, so Terry started, and once that happened, all of a sudden I got drawn into other tech things. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another, and I ended up doing tons of uh, of some of the biggest tech CEO and board. Can you talk about the, the ones you placed, the ones you... Sure. Um, and, you know, it doesn't always work. Right. And uh, But one of the things that I and Spencer Stewart as a firm, we're really focused on research and learning. Mm-hmm. And we're really much a learning organization. But a lot that, you know, some I think I can mention in this uh, for this audience, I've recruited um, Dan Schulman to PayPal, mm-hmm. Devin Wenig to eBay, helped Meg Whitman bring John Donahoe back to eBay back in 2005, I did the CEO process with the board of Twitter mm-hmm. that resulted in Jack uh, staying as full-time. Oh, look, there's Jack. <laughs> and Jack. And also, but also helped recruit Omid Kurdistani as, mm-hmm. as chairman. 
did the Cisco uh, CEO succession with Chuck Robbins, uh, Pandora most recently a year ago with uh, with Roger Lynch, Hulu, the founding CEO of Hulu, Jason Kyler, who mm-hmm. I'm sure you know, yes. and many uh, along that line. Along the other. So one yeah. grew upon the other, and uh, obviously Marissa Mayer of yes. Yahoo. And yeah. so, so when you were started to do this, is it different in tech when you're looking for CEOs, or was there, because it had been, the it, these are early people. I was just yeah. this morning uh, at Goldman Sachs talking to them about a bunch of stuff, and one of the things was that the, these are founder-led companies and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about, is it that different in tech versus industries? And then in the next exercise, we're talking about how it's going to change, because yeah. I really do think it's changing pretty quickly. It will be changing pretty quickly. But it, was it different when you're dealing with founder com- founder-led companies where the founders are alive um, and still very active in these companies? And sometimes the CEOs, sometimes not. I do think that founder-led companies are their own category. And there's more similarity with a company like Capital One with Rich Fairbank is mm-hmm. still the founder and a company that has the tech founder still in place. More similarities there than uh, than just in the industry. I think the big question in technology that most people in technology think is unique to technology but actually is the case in a different way across industries is what is most important? Do we need an engineering, technology-trained product person to be the CEO or do we need a commercial person Mm -hmm. or do look outside the industry? So that engineer versus non-engineer is the kind of always the core question in, in technology. But that's the same thing in financial services. Do you need someone who has managed a balance sheet or do you need someone who understands tra- sales and trading or risk? Mm-hmm. I just finished uh, working with the board of MetLife and we had a wonderful CEO succession there, someone deeply knowledgeable about the insurance industry in retail where we've done the Ralph Lauren CEO, the Best mm-hmm. Buy CEO, the question is, does they, do they need to be a retailer? And within retail, do they need to be a merchant? Mm-hmm. So these questions of what is most important is absolutely central to this process. But in technology, it's really the— Typically, is it, a, is it an engineer? Is it an engineer or, it a, or not? Or the adult in the room, they often mm-hmm. use it, right? Well, that's when there's a, an early-stage company that—and uh, I, don't, I don't like that— uh, I don't I, either. I don't like I hate that, it. that parlance. And, yeah. and by the way, I've seen some incredibly inspiring— talented, very young people mm-hmm. emerge to be inspiring leaders, and I've seen very seasoned people be quite immature, so Big I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can you say know. it. Yeah. Um, so, but, but in terms of in working for tech differently, you think it's not. It's just that it's just a younger industry. It, it is younger industry. Uh, the centrality of tech to the economy now is greater than it's ever been, and as you and I have chatted about and you've talked with, about with your other guests, the role of tech in society is changing and is under a lot of pressure, and that's big. Where's it going? That's one of the things we'll we'll talk about. I think that 15, 20 years ago, it wasn't the center of all the conversations mm-hmm. as it has become. Right, right. It used to be. I mean, back in 2004, when when Michael Eisner was being succeeded at Disney, mm-hmm. to me, that at the time, that was the be-all and end-all CEO succession process. Right. And that Bob Iger came in, has done the most incredible job. That was the be-all and end-all. Today, you know, it's the big tech companies that are more the the be-all and end-all. And you just look at that by in terms of market cap and who are the most valuable companies in the world. 
All right. When we get back, we're talking with James Citron. He is the head of, is it CEO? You're the CEO practice? Yes. That's what it's called? Yes. At Spencer Stewart, one of the leading recruiting, global executive recruiting firms. Um, and he's recruited a lot of people in tech to their t- top jobs. And not just at the top, also at different levels of the company. Um, when we get back, we're going to talk more about where's the workplace going and how's recruiting going and talent management when we get back. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with James Citrin. He's the leader of Spencer Stewart's CEO practice. We're talking about, uh, he's been very involved in a lot of big tech CEO placements. Talk a little bit about where we are now, because there's a, there's sort of a really interesting shift going on among talent in Silicon Valley. Of you know, Talent's always been in charge in Silicon Valley, pretty much, because of the 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 need for not just engineers but everybody that it's it's been one of these areas that's been where the employees have a lot of sway is that still the case from your perspective I mean you look at Google the Google employees and people like that what is the landscape now because I see more founders sort of moving to the side you see Satya Nadella was not a founder he was an early employee but the company's shifting into a different place perhaps you don't think that but. I'm just curious how you look at where we are. We have Sundar Pichai at Google. We've got uh, we still got Reed Hastings, obviously at Netflix, and Jeff Bezos at Amazon. How do you look at the scene right now? So there are so many topics and, right. and questions right. within within that statement. But I, mean, I think that the companies that you mentioned have been the magnet for some of the most incredible talent into that sector years ago. Companies like Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, had GE had the opportunity to attract the world's best talent. But over the last certainly 10 years, a lot of those companies have been supplanted by or certainly competitive by those great companies that you mentioned. There is a very strong sense within technology that you kind of you get it or you don't get it. And there's a credibility that comes with being associated with these great brands or with the kinds of education and technology education that whether it's Stanford or Caltech or Indian Institute of Technology that gets people into that industry. You know, where we are today, there are some of the most amazing leaders within those companies, but there are also questions about are they just the right place at the right time and Mm -hmm. someone who comes right. in and they, they're hardworking, bright, bright first, young person. Yeah, for the first years. For, or even to this day, you know, how much is it their own leadership, ingenuity, uh, and, and cleverness versus just being 
great within uh, a, a great proven business model. Right. What well, a lot of people say about Google, like that when Google executives leave, they suddenly become humans again. Exactly. Essentially. I mean, it's interesting if you look just on that point. If you actually look at the organizations that have spawned a lot of great tech CEOs, Yahoo actually yes, has a lot out there. <laughs> it's amazing. Okay. Yeah. And eBay has yeah. some of the greatest. Uh, let's, let's name them. Let's say so. Yahoo would be Jeff Weiner. Jeff Weiner at, at LinkedIn, one of the great CEOs mm-hmm. out there, mm-hmm. out there to this day. Who Dan Rosenzweig. Dan Rosenzweig, CEO of Chegg, who's done a great job building mm-hmm. that to a three point five billion dollar public company. Hillary Schneider, Peter Schneider at, Sue Decker not, wasn't CEO following, but... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they've had a lot of executives yeah, moving into big yeah, jobs. It's, it yeah. is interesting. Yahoo has... Um, Dinesh, uh, the, mm-hmm. the CEO of One Kings Lane, mm-hmm. there, there are a number that yeah, were Yeah, and then uh, eBay had a whole bunch. eBay had a, had a whole bunch as well. And so sometimes those organizations that have had to fight a little bit more were great, but then things didn't go quite well. They'd have to really be that kind of ingenuity. But just at a principal level, what I always find about recruiting, and this is just sort of a lesson learned for anybody listening, if mm-hmm. you're ever thinking about your own career getting a mm-hmm. job, or if you're on a board, or if you're hiring people, it's the same thing on both sides, which is think about a Venn diagram with three intersecting circles. And this, to me, simplifies kind of the whole recruiting proposition. In one circle, there's capability. What is needed in the job? What is someone's ability to actually do that? How much has their experience before trained them to do that? So capability, that's Mm -hmm. one thing. Number two is credibility. And this goes back to the question about in tech, is tech different? Everyone now, especially then, when someone gets announced, they'll Google that person, they'll call their friends, they'll look on Glassdoor, they'll say, okay, who is this person all about? Is she great and someone to do, inspired by, or, or not? So that's one of the criterion that boards or hiring managers always say, Will he or she be credible and retain our team? But then the third is attractability. When you're doing recruiting, you actually need to find a person who will do the job. When you're doing succession planning, which is a big part of our Spencer Stewart work, Mm -hmm. we do a lot of leadership advisory work, succession planning, assessment, and all of that. This is someone pulling from inside the company. Correct. That's when you're doing promoting from within. Mm -hmm. I do want to come back to that because that is one of the big trends to, uh, to talk about. But in any case, if you think about the intersection of capability, credibility, and attractability in that little intersection. That's where the magic needs to happen, and that's where you can find the right people, but it's not a lot of people mm-hmm. in these important, big, high-level jobs. Right. Talk a little bit about succession planning versus that, because one yeah. of the, that several of the jobs have been succession. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, in tech. So in 2004, just give you a couple of statistics. So in 2004, the mix at the S&P 500 level in the United States there were about two-thirds of CEO appointments were promoted from within, and one-third were recruited from outside. Mm-hmm. And years ago, again, when I started, the way most boards thought about CEO appointments was, oh, we have the person, usually, by the way, designated by the incumbent CEO, which usually back at the time was usually a guy, mm-hmm. and he would say, here's my successor, here's and my the guy. boards would, would guy, do yeah. that. And usually was 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 the guy. After Sarbanes-Oxley, that started to change. And so in 2004, when we started measuring at Spencer Stewart and our CEO practice, we study every single CEO transition. We do a case study, whether we're involved or not. And we do statistics about what works, insiders versus outsiders, first time versus experience, mm-hmm. ages and backgrounds, et cetera. But in any case, back then, one third was outside, two thirds were inside. 
almost on a straight line basis over the ensuing 13 years, Mm -hmm. that shift went to 90% insiders and only 10% outsiders. And so from one-third, two-thirds to 90-10. And that was a function of a couple of things. Number one, boards did get much better at succession planning. They realized that actually the old way of having the incumbent CEO just telling their board, here's my guy, that no longer worked. Number two, there were some high-profile disasters, and boards tend to be quite anecdotal and said, oh, well, we don't want to deal with you know, Bob Nardelli mm-hmm. going to Home Depot and it not working and having to pay $200 million Disney. in... Uh, well, Disney wasn't uh, the CEO. That was a right. COO and yeah, Michael, right. Michael oh, right, right. But at the CEO level, there were a few of these high-profile ones, and the boards did truly get better at looking at this two, three, four years in advance. And so that pendulum swung to succession planning and promotion from within. And that's a place where Spencer Stewart and, and our competitors mm-hmm. also do that work, advise boards, assess the internals, develop the specs, either benchmark against the externals or have externals and have an internal and external track. And some of the actual CEO appointments that we're most proud of at Spencer Stewart and that I personally am most proud of are actually insiders. So, mm-hmm. for example, in, in tech, one of the great surprise appointments, and this is one I would call a skip level, is Andrew Wilson at Electronic Arts. Mm-hmm. At EA, uh, we were doing that process. There were external candidates, there were internal candidates. And at the time, Andrew was a 39-year-old division guy three levels down who was running EA Sports. But we assessed him like we do the others, and we saw this incredible leadership, this thought leadership, this learning potential and humility, and we played a key role in recommending to the board. Similarly, Chuck Robbins at Cisco was a skip-level CEO mm-hmm. appointment. Is that what they and, call them, skip-levels? Well, I, I yeah, don't know if that's, that's what they fine. call them. That's what I call them. Just when they're not the obvious, like the <laughs> right. COO who is, you know, the, right. the, the step up. Right. So that's where the boards are. They're really doing succession planning. And as I said, when there were only 10% of the appointments went to the outsiders, those 10% tended to be the most difficult assignments, whether there was an activist or maybe there was a Me Too issue or there was a real business model breakdown or a real turnaround. So here's a case like Best Buy in Mm -hmm. 2012 where many people started writing it off for dead. And you had the founder who was pushed out and who was not being treated well by the board, and he really didn't like the direction of the company. He was working with private equity to make a hostile. You had Amazon basically putting them out of business. Circuit City had gone out of business. People using Best Buy to showroom and then buy on Amazon. There were real questions about its survival. And in that case, we found Hubert Jolie, who was outside of retail, Mm -hmm. but a brilliant guy, inspiring. He had a vision that had a cost aspect of it, to be able to be cost competitive with Amazon, to partner with vendors, to create these stores within stores, to refocus on the training and culture of the employees so that you and I can go into a Best Buy store and not feel and and just actually learn Mm because we need to touch and feel. And that company has been a great turnaround. Mm -hmm. When you're thinking of succession, one of the things that's hard is a lot of these in tech successors of founders, like in the case of Microsoft, it went to Bomber, who was kind of a founder. I consider him, he was there so early. He yeah. was sort of a semi-founder, I guess. They went with an internal person. Yes. That has been a very successful, huge, huge, huge yeah. successful. And in fact, I'd put Satya, far superior to Bomber. I'd put Satya and Bob Iger. If you were to ask me, you know, yeah. who are the two best 
internal successors who have trans fundamentally transformed their organizations. So far, I would say Satya and and Bob, and I think it's it's a function of some things. That, back to your earlier question about like what leadership, what timeless. They they both had an absolute clear vision for what they wanted their organizations to be, and then in a in the case of Satya, and again you know him and I know him really well. He's this wonderful person. He's a values based leader. He's very humanistic, but he's intellectually rigorous. Mm-hmm. He's not. He makes tough decisions and makes big big bets but brings others along and his bets have turned out to be really right. And he's kind of recreated the per- sense he's of purpose. He's created the founder culture there that yeah. was somewhat toxic, had yeah. become very aggressive and internally aggressive and changed it really drastically. The Microsoft today is not the Microsoft I started covering, for it, sure. It's absolutely And change right. a founder culture, really, which a lot of these companies, some people don't think you can escape the DNA of these tech founders, especially. Okay, not to over-index on, on Microsoft, uh, but I, I would say that he didn't. I think he kind of reignited the the best parts of the Bill okay. founder culture, mm-hmm. and I think being highly sensitive, the same way Kevin Johnson is doing at Starbucks yes, right that's now. Yes, a really good point. So, so I, it's not changing it, but I think the smartest leaders really know what to tap into on that. But one of the real things that I've seen, and I believe. Carrot, to the bottom of my heart is that leadership matters mm-hmm. and that a great leader can actually help make people's lives better. And I don't just mean this to sound nice. Mm-hmm. I really believe it. Mm-hmm. A, a lousy leader creates toxicity. People we'll get are, to that. <laughs> okay. People are miserable. But a great leader really creates opportunities, makes people happy, and creates jobs. And, and, and what's shocking mostly about Microsoft is how fundamentally and how quickly Something of that size could be transformed. What about at Apple with Tim Cook? Because he was a he was an internal hire, yeah. right? Yeah. So Tim came in. He was a highly regarded uh, and logistics favorite. and favorite. and logistics and ops expert back in Texas, and and came in to do tech and ops, and uh, he obviously was Steve's successor. But it wasn't even obvious up until maybe six months before the appointment that he was going to be the one. And there were questions, and that's a big open question. I won't really speculate on Tim's successor whenever Mm -hmm. that happens, but it's a really interesting exercise to think, okay, how do you take something and go to the next level? Oftentimes, people think, okay, we just need more of the same, but most great leadership transitions are quite different. Mm -hmm. And so that's a real important one. But How Tim, successful do you think he has been in that? Probably not appropriate for her to say, yeah. other than to say, ah, the guy's amazing. Right. He's a values-based leader. He's right. brilliant. You know, right. he's created the world's most valuable company up until, you know, a couple of weeks ago or whatever. And obviously they've got challenges, but growing on that massive base, think, but I'm a huge fan. Do you think most founders eventually have to be replaced? Or is there, the, 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 the one founder who's done very well is Jeff Bezos, obviously, yeah. despite his personal troubles right now, but he has really led that almost perfectly. But there's very few that have survived. There'd be Gates, him, Jobs, but they're gone and Larry and Sergey, I don't know what, you know, they're off. One's doing a hovercraft, the other, you know, it just is, there's, they have not been as engaged as, yeah. uh, as previously. Right. Is there a problem with having a founder? And we'll get to Mark Zuckerberg in the next section. I think the challenge of being a founder, and I've, we've done some research on this, I, I just think it's such a fascinating topic. I just think, just in general, today's founders of that caliber 
you know, a century or two centuries ago, they might have gone into politics or military. But now the changing the world is to found and, and build these big build these companies. So the kind of quality of people coming into business over the last 20, 50 years is, is very, very, very high. The big challenge is can they change as the needs of the organization change? And you, I know you've had great VC partners on this mm-hmm. uh, on this show, and, and they're in that business of making judgments of who to back and all of this. It is the rare founder who can go from the zero to build the team, raising the funding, creating the commercialization, and then you know zero to 100, then 100 to 500 and all that, and constantly scaling. I will say something, um, this might be inappropriate, but years ago, one of the big uh, uh, searches I did in, in the internet in the mid-90s was the for the head of barnesandnoble.com. Oh, my God, that one. And I was there. You were there. <laughs> so we were, like at the time, looking at Amazon, and someone on the board of Barnes & Noble made the comments, like, well, Jeff Bezos wouldn't be qualified to be to run barnesandnoble.com. Again, I, sorry, I That's apologize. Okay. They're but, gone. But, but in, any ca- in any case, the, the, the point is that the ability to scale, the ability to learn, the ability to attract great people uh, is really what uh, what a founder needs to do. And I've, I've seen, again, it's not just in tech. And uh, Howard Schultz is one of my uh, one of my business heroes, one of the friends, actually, who I met back in 1997 when I interviewed him for Lessons from the Top. Rich Fairbank, I mentioned, at, at Capital One, one of the longest-serving mm-hmm. uh, founders in, in, in America today. And so I think... Their ability to scale is a function of not being arrogant, keeping learning, attracting great people around, and constantly being open to what's needed to go to the next level. And not being so addled by being so ridiculously wealthy that they they start doing crazy things. Um, Well, well, actually, the motivation is a really interesting question. mm -hmm. Where, And that's one of the topics I really want to study, which is where do people's fire come from and how does that fire change at different levels of success or failure. In uh, one of the really interesting lessons learned over the years about hiring great people is looking at Sandy Weil. You remember Sandy mm-hmm. Weil? Sure. Built Travelers, merged with City. Sandy, and I interviewed him back in, in 1998, and I followed this. He had a real theory that he hired people on the rebound, that people who had had a failure if he understood it and they learned from it, they would be that much more motivated to succeed the next time. Sure. And on that basis, Jamie Dimon really was was mm-hmm. created and has become the greatest leader in financial services. Mm-hmm. So I never forgot that. And so that idea of understanding failure, which is very hard for many people and very hard for boards because very board boards can, unless they're given the confidence, they can tend to be very risk-averse. Yeah, that guy. And, yeah. Oh, no, not that guy. So. He did that. But at the same time, I think when the successful ones lose their motivation, it's, it's almost always over money. They get licked up and down all day, and you know this, and think they're right all the time. And we'll talk about that next, because okay. I do think the the constant reinforcement cycle of these people that they get, someone just asked me this today, and I was like, they literally get licked up and down all day. And when you challenge them, I often am in meetings with them, I'm like, what are you talking about? They aren't even used to challenge anymore, which I, or, or extreme cohesiveness is like a toxicity. 
it's not just the founders. The uh, more senior you get yes. in business and yes. government and all that, people, and it's human nature. It happened yep. in monarchies back in the day. Yep, exactly. You know, because people's power gets derived from their proximity exactly. to others. So, exactly. So it is a really big trap it, and of the leader. And it's a trap in tech right now, I think, yeah. in a lot of ways. Anyway, we're here with James Citron, the leader of Spencer Stewart's CEO practice. We'll talk more after this. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with James Citron, the leader of the Spencer Stewart CEO practice. We're talking about a wide range of topics, especially focusing on tech, because uh, uh, James has been really involved in a lot of big CEO hires in tech and other big executives. One of the things is the downside of what happens when you have a crisis at a company and what happens then. I didn't ask you about Marissa because I know you're not going to talk about Marissa Mayer. But we- I'm still very proud of my role in, in mm-hmm. recruiting Marissa, and I'm very proud of Many of the things she did, and I think she did some some great things. It didn't all work out, but I'm, I'm well, actually very— Well, now, Yahoo, where is Yahoo? It's funny. It's, you yeah. know, it's unfortunately—I think Yahoo was on a downturn, and almost nobody could have saved the situation. Um, but one of the things, when you have crises like that, not just with Marissa, but lots of different CEOs, like with Travis Kalanick at Uber or right now with Mark and Cheryl at Facebook— what happens inside a company when there's, like, recently there's been a million calls for Cheryl or Mark to, Mark can't be fired, obviously, or you have a founder that actually can't, like, has that control that can't move out. Um, first, how do you feel about that inability of boards to actually do anything when they when these companies are have way too much founder control or have complete founder control, which what's interesting is Amazon doesn't have it and Facebook does, Google did have it. And then what happens in these crises when there's calls for firing, when Wall Street pressure? Talk a little bit. I know you don't want to talk specifically about whether they should be fired, but what happens? What- Look, it, I, whether or not there are super voting shares or control or not, I actually think is not the central point. Okay. I think the central point, Kara, is the degree to which a board has or does not have confidence in their leader. And that you can have all, even be an advisory board. And if it's a group of people that the leader or the founder respects, they will have a big influence. The Facebook board has some amazing people on it. And again, not to speculate what's going on in that discussion, but I believe that boards as a body, there, this is how this is how they think. We support our CEO until we don't. Mm-hmm. And they're always asking. So Within any situation, a board is always asking the question, how do we feel about what's going on? And then exercising influence to the best of their ability. And if they do not feel that they have their advice being taken or their counsel, then they can resign. But they don't. I mean, a lot of people do feel a lot of tech boards are toothless, like around Tesla and the SEC stuff and the, uh, you know, obviously Elon's a great leader in many ways, but some of the stuff he did was really problematic, around, especially around the comments relating to his stock, and then, uh, which I think a lot of other CEOs would have gotten in a lot more trouble. It's really fascinating if the CEO of, uh, 
I don't know, any company would have done that, I think there would be a lot more hell to pay uh, in, a, in an interesting way. So, And the boards would have acted differently. Same thing at Facebook. Most people feel like they have almost no power to do anything. And we don't know exactly what's yeah. happening, but most people feel they don't have any. Uh, look, again, I don't want to speak beyond my area of insight or, or, or what, what is appropriate, but I actually believe that companies are either wired to try and be positive sources or not. Mm-hmm. And in, in boards, the case, you mean? Well, no, companies and then boards can uh, operate to the best of their ability within within that context. I, I don't think this is controversial, and I'm not just saying this, but I actually genuinely believe that the impetus of Facebook is good. They are good people trying to do good things. Obviously, there's a lot that needs to happen. I really believe that strongly. And I will tell you something about Mark that I've, I haven't met him many times. I've done, done work, but there is something that I think is quite instructive. Back in 2007, I had the opportunity slash privilege to uh, work with Mark and Cheryl to recruit a chief financial officer for Facebook. And something that I think speaks volumes about their culture and, and to this day. So I met met with Mark and we spent two hours and he didn't know Spencer Stewart, he didn't know Jim Citron, he didn't know any of this stuff. And and but he started the questions with and the first part was like, okay, well who are you and what is Spencer Stewart and what's recruiting and all this very high level stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he just asked question and question and question. After the at the end of two hours, based on his questions, he got to such a level of insight about how things work. And he said, okay, so one final question. So so let me understand this. So if you're working on multiple CFO assignments at a time, how do you adjudicate, and use that word, how do you adjudicate between a candidate that you'll show us at Facebook and uh, someone else? Mm-hmm. And that is an incredibly sophisticated question about mm-hmm. how to work with an executive search firm like Spencer Stewart. And what he did over the time of meeting all the candidates was really try and go to school on what a world-class CFO is like. And we ended up recruiting a wonderful guy named David Ebersman, mm-hmm. who had been the CFO of Genentech, who then and then took them public, and he had, has gone on to great things as a CEO of Lyra Health. So that, to me, speaks volumes about his capability to ask questions and learn and mm-hmm. be open. And I, from what I believe and hope, it's the same impetus right now to get to the truth, to get to the essence based on good, and to figure out what needs to happen. So that's anyway, that's that's what I believe. Right. But I, I do think that the boards, they're going to be really always focused on how can we help this organization do the right thing. Do you think they should be more, I don't mean antagonistic, but tougher on these CEOs or not? We, we don't know what happens behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it could be. It feels well, like there's no consequence. It certainly doesn't. Well, again, I think that's, uh, you know, anybody can, can speculate. Well, you look uh, at you look at all the Me Too stuff. You look at the stuff at Google and sexual harassment. You look like where was who is when you have like how much is that impacted? Like it's you could go on a lot of not just it's diversity, Me Too, all those things. Like there's a lot more complexity to being a manager today in terms of yeah. things that were allowed to go on, and especially when you don't have a diverse culture and you have an almost all male white male culture, it creates a different kind of outcomes. Yeah, I, I do think that it's interesting. I just. Uh, had a, a wonderful conversation with with Facebook's uh, worldwide head of diversity and inclusion, and she was 
she was a Rhodes Scholar. She's, yeah, yeah. Uh, she, do, you know, do you know what Maxine? Mm-hmm. Incredible, inspiring. Mm-hmm. And the quality of the work that they're doing and the implications, it's not just HR practices, it's on every aspect of their business from the product, how do we, how are our users interacting and trying to get their leadership team and their user base, all that mm-hmm. to be uh, reflective of the global world. But you're absolutely right. Our requirement for checking beyond uh, what's just in the public domain and even the routine background checks has gone greater than it has ever been before, particularly because if in board appointments or CEO appointments, that could bring down a board or a company or an Mm -hmm. individual if something is not understood and disclosed. And so now we have different kind of steps. Intel, it's happened. Like, you know, it's a really interesting problem now to face, especially when it goes back 20, 30 years, yeah. correct? What do you do? What is, what is the... I, I mean, I think... Just Well, I think there's kind of two levels. There are, Companies have policies, and so there's, you know, that can tend to be a sound a little, you know, bureaucratic, but it, these are judgment cases, um, and I think there are clear cases where things need to be... Decisions need to be taken, and that's very obvious, but there are they're gray matters where mm-hmm. they're maybe alleged and you have to be careful in this environment mm-hmm. that people are not guilty right. until they're proven innocent. Mm-hmm. But as I say, it's really incumbent on boards and individuals to disclose and to do the work and to understand what they're uh, what they're doing. Do you spend a lot of time doing in that vein? Because I would think it's more important than ever. I don't want to say oppo, but it's kind of, you know, how politics, they do oppo and, you know, you do oppo on yourself. Like, what's the worst thing they can say about me? Do you tell boards the bad things you heard about the candidates when you, inter- like, or are you going, this is a shiny new candidate we'd like to show you? We really try and be balanced. I, I say, I can't tell you how many times I say, no one's perfect. It's all about trade-offs. It's all about understanding. Do you tell them the trade-offs or the oh, rumors? All, or all the, the time. Like, if you let, because I'm often called by people and they're like, "What do you think?" I'm like, "Oh, here's the six things I've heard." Right. Like, just um, so they know. That, absolutely. That it's out there. We really try and operate. And Spencer's do it in a no surprises. <laughs> if you read our candidate reports, they're balanced. They're really balanced. We really try not to sell. <laughs> we really try and advise, and it's all in the context of helping hiring leaders and boards understand that no one's perfect, and that. In fact, the, the, the way I learned this years ago, the best way to get references is to ask, have the confidence to say, look, we know all lots of the good. I really want to understand the downside. So if you don't come back to me, Spencer Stewart or whoever, with the real downside, then you won't have done your job. Mm-hmm. And we can handle it. We'll just make our judgments. And so that's kind of the spirit that we mm-hmm. go into these. We always ask uh, candidates for kind of their list of references and respect them. We also do our own. Mm -hmm. And because of the work that we do, recruiting board directors with our trusted relationships, we're able to have access and do really good 360s. And I I will say, you know, knock on wood, you know, anything can happen, but we we take that very, very seriously to help our clients and help ourselves prevent even, really even alleged surprises. problems. Because I was one that told Uber about problems with one of their Google recruits. Like that, at least it was never determined. But I was like, it happened. You need to be aware that this was a problem there. Even if I don't know if it was proven or not, but boy, that was there was an issue, yeah. and they didn't know. And I was like. You know, where was that? Where did that not happen? Where did that so, not happen? Yeah. So what do you do also, it, 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 just a couple more things, when you have, I'm sorry to focus on negative things, but when you do have 
like a toxic CEO, like like an Uber CEO, where you have a problem, where there's you know, mounting problems within a company. Do you get brought into those things, or like recruiting Dara, for example? Did, yeah. did you? No, un- unfortunately, we didn't uh, yeah. recruit Dara, but right. Dara was, a, I think, a brilliant choice for, did, for, for as an outsider. Yeah. Like you know, you can handicap other yeah. teams. What, what yeah. do you? What was the problem they faced? I mean, they first of all they had a, had a CEO who had a lot of power, right? Who had a lot. Well, of, that process started by. Travis having to recruit a COO right. being imposed on him by the board. And that was going to be a challenge, but mm-hmm. still Uber is Uber and mm-hmm. many great people around the world were drawn to that. Mm-hmm. And so they had some candidates, as I understand. And one had I've left talked. previously. Exactly. And then after Travis was uh, uh, stepped out, then it turned into a CEO search. And, uh, you know, at least as was reported in Recode, mm-hmm. you know, they had Meg, they had Jeff Immelt, and they had a dark horse. Yeah. And that dark horse turned out to be Dara. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting— He read it in Recode. <laughs> he didn't know he had it. <laughs> oh, that's, that's funny. funny. Uh, I mean, he knew just, he was a candidate, but yeah. he, his daughter's like, Recode's saying you're the CEO. <laughs> that's hilarious. Funny. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Diller told him because Diller's like, well, Kara just called me and said you got the job. That and it is was very funny. hilarious. But when you're doing that, like yeah. when that when you're in a situation like that where it's fast moving and there's a lot of press attention on yeah. it and things like that, how do you manage that, for, especially for the employees? And I want to finish up talking about okay. where employees are. Good. Look, here's the, here's the principle: great people can go into really difficult situations if they know what they're getting themselves into. Transparency is really key. Mm-hmm. And again, I wasn't on the inside of the Uber board, how they characterized it. And I know Travis had uh, a lot of influence. But in any case, difficult situations can attract great people if people know what they're getting into. So here's here's one um, that I think, I think I can mention. Uh, we just recruited the CEO of Nielsen. Mm-hmm. David Kenny came into Nielsen. That's a case in a challenged company that is in the middle of uh, an activist situation Mm -hmm. where the activist has pressured the company and the company committed to doing a strategic review process. Mm -hmm. And so that was happening publicly. How do you recruit someone into that? Well, it requires a great board to be extremely honest, transparent with their candidates to say, here's the situation. We haven't come to any conclusion, but we'd like you to come in and help us sort out what is the best thing for our shareholders and our customers and all of that. And Dave was at IBM. Yeah. How did you get him? What did you say? Oh, Dave, I've got a chance. Well, David, someone I've known for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in. Uh, he was on the board we were, of Yahoo. He was on the board of Yahoo, but we were classmates at Harvard Business School together, and uh, and he was doing extraordinary things at as at IBM and uh, with Watson and their cloud business. But uh, but anyway, I just knew that he loves technology. He loves media. He's had experience in private equity. He's had turnarounds. He he was the, here's an interesting thing, he would have been the logical person had one of the private equity firms made a presumptive bid to try and acquire Nielsen. Mm-hmm. That's how, that's to the point earlier I said about credibility. He was super credible and he's super capable. And, you know, just knowing over many years that, you know, something like that could be the right thing, he ultimately could be attractable, but it's a real testament to the Nielsen board. They were really, really transparent with him, and now he's leading the strategic process very, very well. But the principle is that difficult situations, there are 
almost every, I say this all the time, nothing is easy. Nothing mm -hmm. is perfect at all. And if it's perfect, then there's only downsides. So mm -hmm. it's about diagnosing a situation. And then I'm a big person of, you go with the people. If they're people who you trust, they're people who you respect, if they're people who you like, and you align yourselves with them, then you have a great chance to be successful at the CEO level or even if you're coming out of college. Right. So last question, uh, and so we're going to get going, but right now with the power of employees, you see the Google employees demanding their management manage better, like very clearly making messages and saying you, you've fallen down on the job. And I think there'll be more and more of that um, at a lot of these companies. They're not quite as docile as they used to be in terms of things, and they have a voice and they use it. Yeah. What is the best, give me like three very brief, like what is the most important things for CEOs to be like today when you think about, like what are the three best qualities for a CEO? Authentic. There's no separation between one's work life and their non-work life. So being authentic and not being a BS artist, not trying to be a salesperson, just mm -hmm. to be real. Mm -hmm. Number two is communicative and absolutely so uh, I mentioned I'm a, a graduate of Vassar College, our president at Vassar, Betsy Bradley, she writes on every Sunday night, she writes an email to the college community about what she did this week. Mm -hmm. And she takes pictures of the sports events and the mm -hmm. Vassar National Women's Rugby Champions issues that she's worried about. And that becomes a way of her, her leadership style. I've seen company leaders do that as well. So communicative, authentic. authentic. And I genuinely think because you have to be transparent now, boy. Everything really, gets out. Jeff Bezos' texts get out. I mean, everything gets out. Every, everything. You do have to assume that everything's out. And I think the third thing is the role, now at the CEO level, the real role is to be the thought leader of the company or the organization. Mm -hmm. Where are we going? Everyone wants to know where we're going. Even if you don't know, you can say, here's where I think we're going for these reasons. So if you are the thought leader, and that, by the way, goes to the... If I really summarize everything I've learned over these 25 years and 700 assignments mm -hmm. and all this, the two ingredients that are most important for leaders are twofold. Number one is to be the thought leader for the organization. And number two, to be the people leader. It sounds simple and simplistic and almost trite, but it's really below that. To be the thought leader, what does that mean? You have to be really smart. You have to really know enough about the situation. You have to be a realist. You have to do your homework. And you have to develop a point of view, ideally with others, to be the thought leader. To be the people leader, that means to have the right value set. That means to genuinely care as much about the people who work with you and for you as your own success. It means to really do right by others. And if you you can do that and be a real introvert, as I said, or... But if you're those two things, so that's a really important lesson for hiring people or for listeners for their own careers. Just developing those two instincts is what I would say. All right, James, what's your next job? <laughs> 25 years what so far. What would you far, be if Spencer? you weren't a recruiter? I've been in some form of the recruiting business for, I, I was a college admissions interviewer. I led analyst recruiting at Morgan Stanley. I just, I, I've been always doing this and I absolutely love it. I would probably be, if the only thing... I, I've been an adjunct professor mm -hmm. at Harvard Business School, at Stanford, at yeah. Duke, and and others. So, and I've written seven books. I love writing. I love teaching. I like 
communicating. So that's probably what I would do. Future. But I still have at least hopefully another good 15 years here at Spencer Stewart. All right, James, thank you so much. It's a really great discussion. Again, thanks for coming on the show after all this time. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time and thank you all for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend about this show. You can follow me uh, on Twitter at Kara Swisher. James, where can people follow you online? I'm, well, I'm a LinkedIn influencer, and I've got 988,000 followers, <laughs> oh, wow. so I need 12,000 listeners to just follow so <laughs> okay. I can crack that million. What happens uh, with Jeff Wiener give you a free lunch? Uh, chef area at LinkedIn? I, I, I Have you tell seen you, the chef uh, area at LinkedIn? I, I will tell you once I crack right, across okay. a million. All right, okay. All right, so, and then what about Twitter? Are you on Twitter? Twitter, I think I'm at James Citron, but I'm not, I'm not a big one. You're not a I'm big not one? A big, I, mean, I love Twitter, but I'm more Leaving of a reader. Leaving it to Alexandria Ocasio and Trump, eh? That's what you're going to do. They're dueling it out right now on Twitter. And occasionally George Conway weighs in. Now that you're done with this, go check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. 